Now, to give you some background, the paper you're about to hear is based on a body of ethnographic research that I've conducted <coughs> over a period of about 10 years. So that research is based in a city called Jamshedpur, which is the company town of the Tata Corporation in eastern India. And what I've done in that research is to do three key areas of fieldwork. Firstly, work on the Tata Motors shop floor, which is a very large industrial facility. A lot of work among trade unionists. And finally, a lot of fieldwork among entrepreneurs and various types of professional criminals. And the purpose of that work is to try to think through what the relationship is between organized crime and corruption and the decline of employment security. So today's paper is based on that body of research, but it discusses a slightly different topic. What today's paper tries to do is to explain why a multi-ethnic workforce would exchange potentially offensive ethnic jokes with one another while remaining very conspicuously silent on actual incidences of communal violence. And what the paper goes on to argue is that jokes about one another's religion and ethnicity, in this instance, are means by which people use irony to articulate perspectives on public life. So I'm looking forward to quite a good discussion of this because I think there is some departmental expertise in questions of ethnicity, nationalism, violence, and also things like urban labour. So let's begin. Late in the evening rush hour of July the 11th, 2006, a series of seven bombs exploded on Mumbai's suburban railway network. In 10 minutes, more than 200 people were killed and another 700 injured. Responsibility for the bombings was claimed by the Islamic terrorist organization Lashkar Ikar, which claimed to avenge the Hindu persecution of Muslims in the Indian states of Kashmir and Gujarat. As awful as the Mumbai train bombings may be, they were not exceptional. The history of modern India is punctuated by sporadic bombings, riots and massacres that emerge from communal tensions and have a reproductive logic all of their own. As ethnicities and religions are victimised by chauvinistic movements in India, so reprisals have historically sought to avenge injustices and to reinstate the honour of violated communities. Since the 2006 Mumbai train bombings might have incited retaliation, in the days following the blasts, the Indian media was saturated with analyses of national communal relations. At the time of the bombings, I was conducting ethnographic research on the shop floor of the Tata Motors automobile plant in Jamshedpur, an industrial town in eastern India, which was built by the Tata Iron and Steel Company in the 1900s and is today largely populated by the descendants of labour migrants from northern and central India. Although Jamshedpur endured more than its fair share of communal unrest during the 60s and 70s, for much of the previous 30 years, the relative communal harmony of the city's workforce has been distinctive among regional industrial towns. In the Tata Motors plant, while the management cadre is mainly comprised of Hindu elites from the neighbouring states of West Bengal, the blue-collar workforce is a varied mix of low-caste Hindus, Sikhs, Muslims, and a smattering of individuals from impoverished high castes. With the exception of a simmering antipathy between the Bengali managerial class and their subordinates, relations between the plant's religious, regional and caste communities are free of any evident communal tension, and workers are united by a shared critical perspective upon the perceived relationship between corporate capital and the state in India. As I arrived at the plant the morning after the Mumbai train bombings, I wondered what the workforce would say about the events of the previous evening. Stepping onto the shop floor at 7am, the day seemed much like any other. Young apprentices in blue uniforms strode smartly between the assembly lines, while their fathers and uncles drifted at a more leisurely pace in grey shirts and trousers. Dozens of rivet guns and welding torches chattered and roared across the low hum of conversation as sheets of steel and trays of components were shaped into 40-ton trucks. At the end of the paint shop line, the usual gathering of dispatch drivers was clustered in the small space between a robotic crane and a decrepit tractor. Here, a dozen men took turns to load freshly sprayed truck cabs onto trailers from where they would be towed across the plant for further assembly. Idle drivers sat on paint tins to drink tea, <coughs> chew tobacco, and make jokes about the incompetence of their foreman, 
as their friends stood and worked beside them. As each long line of trailers was filled with freshly painted cabs, a new man would rise to take his colleague's position, content that after 20 minutes of labour, he could rejoin the circle of chatting, chewing and drinking on the floor below. As the morning lurched towards midday, no one had yet mentioned the bombings. The bomb blasts were the lead story in all print and broadcast media that day, and it seemed to me implausible that the dispatch drivers should be unaware of them. After a roughly five hours of curiosity, I eventually asked Sadaka and Jasvinda what had happened in Mumbai the previous evening. Muslim Sadaka and Sikh Jasvinda would seem an unlikely pair of friends whatever their faith. Where Sadaka was short and slightly built, his friend Jasvinda towered over his workmates. Dishevelled Sadaka's shirt was never ironed and his shoes were never tied. In comparison, Jasvinda's clothes were neat and freshly laundered every day. Sadaka's rasping voice betrayed the fact that he was a heavy smoker. Jasvinda, on the other hand, was a keen athlete who avoided cigarettes. When we spoke about the previous day's events, Sadaka told me that the train bombings were very serious and that hundreds of people had been killed. <coughs> Jasvinda agreed that the events in Mumbai were an important issue for anyone in India and thought that in the days to come, riots might break out in any number of cities. However, both men agreed that nothing of the sort would happen in Jamshedpur. The city, they told me, was a place where working people of all backgrounds could feel at ease with one another. That afternoon, I ate lunch in the dispatch driver's break room with four Muslims, one Sikh, four low-caste local Hindus, and a Nepali. In the days that followed, it transpired that Jasvinder and Sadakat's opinions were shared by all of their colleagues in the paint shop, who would talk about the blast with me in snatches of private conversation. However, in the public space of the break room that lunchtime, an intriguing silence pervaded over the bombings, and no one, it seemed, particularly wanted to discuss the news from Mumbai. One might consider that at times of communal atrocity, Religious politics is a topic that is simply too dangerous to broach in an ethnically diverse working environment. After all, the workplace demands cooperation between people that could easily be strangers or even antagonists were it not for their shared employment. On a day of communal <coughs> outrage, it would seem wise for a room full of Sikhs, Muslims and Hindus perhaps to simply avoid the topic of religion altogether. However, the politics of the shop floor engages with religious and ethnic identity in ways that are somewhat more subtle than avoidance and which speak obliquely to a shared perspective on the proper public life of religion. As I sat wondering at the shop floor's silence on the bombings, one young Muslim man reached into his pocket for his mobile phone and called the break room to attention. He sat upright on the low table which served as a sleeping platform and cleared his throat. Opening an SMS, he read aloud to his colleagues a joke, which read, Three men are waiting at an airport, one Muslim, one Hindu, and one Sikh. The Muslim says to the other men, Brothers, my Nawabzada, my princely son, is coming. The Hindu replies, I'm waiting to meet my Amirzada, my rich son. And the Sikh stops and says to both of them, Brothers, that's nothing. My Haramzada, my bastard son, is coming. Laughter and knowing nods broke out across the room, which were then followed by an offering from Jasvinda, who read, What do Guru Nanak, the founder of the Sikh religion, and Mahatma Gandhi have in common? Answer, they were both born on public holidays. At first sight, the day's coincidence between communal silence and religious and ethnic joking seems strange. However, when I knew the dispatch drivers much better, I discovered that those two forms of behaviour were governed by complementary logic that typified sociality within the plant. In the weeks that followed, it was true that lunchtime debates would often contain analyses of political processes, alongside the lighter talk of sport, family and sex. Discussions might even encompass the personal fortunes of politicians that exploit communal sentiment. However, what were never openly discussed in lunchtime debates were specific incidences of communal atrocity, where the sanctity of one community had been profaned by another in a manner that would demand restitution. 
murders, rioting and bomb blasts that ostensibly pit one Indian ethnic group against another were largely off the agenda for public discussion in the workplace. The city's own history of communal rioting in 1964 and 79 was never mentioned in everyday life. And like Jess Finder and Sadakat's opinions on the Mumbai train bombings, discourses on communalism were only forthcoming from workers if solicited by myself, a fact which, incidentally, highlights the ecological fallacies generated by direct questioning. However, the very same people who seem to so often avoid an engagement with the public life of ethnicity and religion in India were not entirely silent on the topic. The Tata shop floor was a profoundly ethnicised space in which insulting, obscene and generally profane forms of humour drew on national stereotypes, stereotypes that derided the alleged stupidity of Sikhs, the coarseness of Biharis and the conservatism of Muslims without evident animosity. In the weeks that followed, prejudicial jokes were read aloud from mobile phones in the break room most lunchtimes, while boisterous teasing characterised many inter-community friendships. For example, the Nepalese driver Sandeep was often teased by his colleagues for his allegedly East Asian facial features, to which he responded by humorously profaning the ethnicity and the custom of his abusers. The daily theatre of Sandeep's joking exemplifies the profanity that characterised the sociality of the shop floor. When we met for the first time, Sandeep's companions introduced him to me as the, quote, Chinese man, while they used the tips of their index fingers to draw their eyelids sideways in a racist parody. His grinning friends did not have to wait long for his response. Sandeep promptly spat a thick jet of chewing tobacco on the floor and denounced his colleagues as a pack of benchod, or sister fuckers. Amid howls of laughter, he said that Bihari benchod liked to do nothing more than to sniff the asses of dogs, an activity which he went on to mime at great length and with provocative gestures. As one man began to literally cry with laughter, Sandeep said a few solemn words on his family's proud history among what he called the degenerates of northern India. While Sandeep could be relied upon to meet defamatory joking with the right degree of humour and profanity, he was also well adept at initiating such exchanges. The very same week, a pious Muslim worker with a full beard and no moustache had the misfortune to meet Sandeep head-on while the two drove their vehicles past the paint shop. Bellowing to attract his attention, Sandeep fixed the man with a comically obscene leer while vigorously stroking an imaginary beard of his own. As the tractors drew closer, Sandeep contorted his face in a theatrical gesture of confusion while raising a questioning hand, palm upwards, asking the man what he thought he looked like. His laughing opponent thrust out his chin to display his beard to fuller scrutiny, much to the delight of the assembled crowd of onlookers. Such profane exchanges took place between Hindus, Muslims and Sikhs every day on the shop floor, where they might assume the narrative form of SMS jokes read aloud to groups of colleagues, extended public bouts of creatively obscene insults, or impromptu comic observations on the cultural shortcomings of one's interlocutors. I suggest that when exchanged between communities in this way, this type of humour may be an ironic practice that speaks critically to the politics of communalism. By approaching ethnic difference largely through the lens of profane humour, workplace interlocutors do more than avoid or deny communal politics. On the contrary, I argue that profane forms of humour should be accorded more analytic attention as indirect articulations of political perspectives on public life. In comparison to the retaliatory logics of communal honour, joking uses irony to establish religion and ethnicity as an object of mutual parody between dissimilar yet tolerant actors. Furthermore, I go on to suggest that the style of profane humour articulates intimacy between those that exchange it. This paper follows a single argument, which is that profane humour is a highly complex social phenomenon whose political content is intelligible to a select community of intimates. In the context of latent communal tension in India, humorous exchanges of this type 
publicly acknowledge the religious and ethnic differences between people while making an implicit statement of the cultural and political similarities that unite them. My argument is that the unspoken ironic content of profane humour articulates a political position on the public life of communal difference, while the style of that humour is itself an important means through which a heterogeneous community makes intimacy. The latter observation is a refinement upon classic anthropological understandings of the importance of insult to intimate joking relations. This paper defines irony as a type of indirect speech whose meaningful content runs counter to the superficial reference, symbols and terminology of the words themselves. Ironic speech demands a subtle grasp of the assumptions, values and tastes of one's audience and assumes an ability to decode meanings that are not articulated in an explicit manner. In this respect, irony is a mode of communication that implicitly creates distinctions between persons that can and cannot grasp its meaning. And, as in the dramatic meaning of the term irony, relies upon an uneven level of understanding between knowing and unknowing parties. This paper considers how ironic humour about ethnicity and religion helps a multi-ethnic workforce to create attachments with one another. So I explore the idea that while the politics of communalism in India is an historically grounded phenomenon that demands the punishment of sacrilege and outrage, joking relationships require a performative tolerance for the contemporary profaning of sacred things. Or put more simply, people that do joke with one another about their culture and their religion implicitly distance themselves from the types of people that would never do so. Here, humour speaks on a meta-level to defame the politics of sanctity as jokers construct ethnicity as a subject which is fit for mutual parody. As indirect critical languages which make communities of their speakers, I argue that in this context, prejudicial jokes are best understood as the expression of what Hertzfeld calls inclusive and exclusive ironies, which is to say ironic practices that build intimate communities of those that engage with them while also excluding those that do not. Muslim Muhammad had worked on the Tata Motors shop floor for 15 years, and he spent his working days towing loads back and forth between sections of the plant with a tractor. Since he was a gregarious character, the work suited his personality well. Whereas most of the plant's workers were confined to a few square metres of an assembly line, Muhammad roamed freely from the cab section to the chassis division, past the engine shop to the foundry, and even on occasion to the distant waste surrounding the test track. As he careered through the plant, he stopped to chat, borrowed cigarettes, paused for a swift chai, and shouted greetings and insults to his friends. He was well-known and well-liked. One summer afternoon, I joined Mohammed on his rounds. After dropping a load of cabs at the chassis division, we stopped by the side of the road to smoke a cigarette. Muhammad produced from his pocket a strip of newspaper printed with the phrase Allah is the most merciful in both Arabic and English. With his face creased in concentration and his cigarette hanging from the corner of his mouth, he used a small tube of glue to fix the paper to the inside of his tractor cab. Notwithstanding the profane jokes of the shop floor, the employees of the Tata Motors plant were generally quite earnest in their religious devotions. Having made an implicit declaration of faith, Muhammad leaned back to survey his work. Satisfied with a job well done, he then proceeded to inhale deeply from the glue tube. <laughs> with a conspiratorial raising of the eyebrows, he used his index finger to make a circling motion round his temple. Feigning a pantomime of intoxication, he then teased me for not joining him in a spot of recreational glue sniffing. After all, he said, didn't lazy foreigners like me spend all their time on drugs anyway? Ironic banter of this type allowed persons to relate to one another through the shared mockery of superficial difference, while still not questioning the core values and legitimacy of one's real ethnic identity. As a Muslim, Muhammad felt comfortable in Jamshidpur. His Sikh and Hindu colleagues in the dispatch section were frequent guests to his home, and he guessed correctly they would attend his brother's wedding that summer. 
nonetheless, he believed that in India, communal violence might begin from the smallest provocation, or, as he puts it, stone-throwing. For example, in December of 1963, reports that Hindus had stolen the lock of the Prophet's hair from a mosque in Srinagar ostensibly ignited a wave of communal violence against Hindus in Bangladesh, which were followed by Hindu reprisals against Muslims across eastern India. In Jamshedpur, one and a half thousand Muslims were killed, and a further 41,000 forced from their homes. Later, in April of 1979, a procession through one of Jamshedpur's Muslim neighbourhoods by a Hindu nationalist organisation resulted in rioting that killed 79 Muslims and 25 Hindus. These were moments of serious communal violence that occurred within living memory, and it seems reasonable to assume that the feelings of violation and triumph that they inspire would still figure in the popular imagination. However, this was not quite the case. For Muhammad, the stone-throwing of communal violence belonged to Jamshapur's past, where it should rightly remain for the conceivable future. He drew my attention to the communal violence that swept across India in 1992, following the destruction of the Babri Masjid Mosque by a coalition of Hindu nationalists, who claimed that the 16th century building stood upon the site of Lord Rama's earthly birthplace. While hundreds had been killed in riots across the country, Jamshedpur remained calm. Muhammad claimed that by the 1990s, the vast majority of people in Jamshedpur no longer wished to do violence to one another, while local police prevented the few that did from gathering together. Like almost all of his colleagues in the plant, Muhammad went on to claim that since Jamshedpur was a, quote, modern town, its citizens did not define themselves in reference to the communal past. Whatever the atrocities of history, today Muslims, Hindus and Sikhs mixed freely in their working environments and neighbourhoods. It's clear, to me at least, that Muhammad's discourse is a modernising one, which relates communalism to the shameful trope of backwardness, to use the local term, that so often stalks the popular Indian imagination. In the company town of Jamshapur, this discourse is consistent with the urban exceptionalism that informs the civic identity of the Tata working class. Founded in 1907, the Tata company town brought prosperity and security to the forested and underdeveloped region where it was sited. In the decades that followed, the civic identity of the securely employed Tata labour force likewise came to distinguish itself from what it saw as the poverty, corruption and violence that were believed to be endemic to surrounding areas. The discourse of urban communal peace may well serve to legitimate the modern behaviour of those that voice it. However, a critical perspective should not detract from the fact that at the time of initial field research, Jamshapur had indeed been free of communal unrest for three decades. As Muhammad's colleague Sunil drew my attention to some weeks later, today people of all backgrounds sit, talk and eat with one another in the plant every lunchtime, after which they lay side by side on the break room sleeping platforms. Sunil was a softly spoken Brahmin man in his late 50s, and the term Brahman refers to the highest order in the Indian caste system. Sitting with Jasvinder and I on the floor of the break room one lunchtime, Sunil explained that his own Hindu religion was the oldest in the world, while Sikh Jasvinder's was much, much younger. As Jasvinder sadly conceded that his faith was only 600 years old, Sunil consoled him that though all of the world's religions, he said, travelled on different roads, they all came from the same place and it was only through poverty and political agitation that different faiths had begun to resent one another. Like many of his co-workers, Sunil subscribed to the idea that communal resentments are chiefly inflamed by politicians who remind their constituents of perceived offences committed decades or even centuries earlier. The destruction of the Babri Masjid, he said, showed what happened when politicians didn't leave the past well alone. Key to the dialectic of offence and retaliation which he described were historical touchstones of communal suffering and victory that shaped some Indian people's understandings of the present. Sunil claimed that modern India could well do without the public remembrance of such events. <coughs> the bulk of literature 
on communal violence in India places analytic emphasis on the spectre of violence itself, as embodied in memory, memorials, and narratives of atrocity. Further afield, many comparative studies of genocide posit sites of memory as key spaces in which communities reference atrocity as a means of negotiating the present. And some of the better literature on the Rwandan genocide really exemplifies this. However, less serious attention has been accorded by ethnographers to the tendency for sites of memory to vanish from the business of everyday life, raising important questions as to how societies not only remember, but move beyond or try to erase their pasts. In Jamshedpur, ethnic violence conspicuously lacks a public language of atrocity. No profane spaces exist in the urban landscape. No collective narratives recall the horrors of the previous decades. And no political leaders speak publicly on the need for communal restitution. The popular relationship to communalism in Jamshedpur posits ethnic and religious violence as a shameful and ideally silent historical anomaly. The popular suggestion in Jamshedpur that communalism is a relic of former years, which only ever emerged in response to political agitation, is a normative discourse which sees violence as exceptional. One might suggest that discourses of this kind principally obscure the true horror of the past and are symptomatic of the denial that accompanies grief and recovery. Or, more critically, one might consider that these ideas distance individuals and communities from the shame and the guilt that accompanies violence. Certainly, ethnographers should be wary of those collective discourses which deny the culpability of their informants in acts of atrocity. However, the reduction of discourses on communal violence to mere ideology underestimates their subtlety. Following Heitmeier, I suggest that normative discourses on communal violence should be taken seriously as one of the means by which the business of everyday peace is constituted in multi-ethnic environments. Integral to this process is the popular engagement in forms of everyday sociality that are distinct from the relations of communalism. In the Tata workplace, the two poles of communal silence and profane joking are mutually reinforcing ways by which everyday peace is reconstituted. Where the local communal past was characterised by durable recollections of disrespect which divided communities, the everyday present is characterised by a performative profanity that unites them. Tata's profane jokes posit religion and ethnicity as subjects that are ripe for modern parody, the very practice of which is opposed to the offence and restitution logic of communalism. I argue that by articulating a rule of sociality that is opposed to the logic of communal politics, potentially offensive jokes voice political positions in the indirect register of irony. The workers that fall silent on the subject of the Mumbai train bombings nonetheless use humour to speak critically to the retaliatory values that inform them. The tendency to publicly defame one another's ethnic identity in the workplace and to expect to receive nothing more than a humorous insult in return counters communal logics in ways that are subtle yet important. In this context, defamatory jokes may be read as a particularly dense and opaque form of social play, which contain a great deal of information and creates insiders of people that crudely can be said to get the joke. By implicitly drawing distinctions between the sociality of the shop floor and the broader Indian public, defamatory jokes, to borrow Hertzfeld's term, render the shop floor a space that is culturally intimate. In an instructive analysis of ironic political commentary in China, Hans Steinmüller defines irony as a practice of dissimulation, where the true meaning of a statement is usually the opposite to its superficial content. Since irony tends to say one thing while meaning another, it's a highly interpretive type of communication that relies upon the closeness of its speakers. In ironic exchanges such as jokes on the Tata shop floor, One's meaning is obscured through a language of insult, which implicitly assumes that one's interlocutors possess the cultural know-how to decode it. Since such exchanges are fraught with the potential for misinterpretation, they create communities of people that negotiate them, which is to say 
that what appears to be the expression of prejudice among Tartar workers is in fact the articulation of a profane inter-ethnic sociality that undermines the communal tropes of honour, offence and retribution. The political content of these exchanges is obscured beneath layers of profane, humorous misdirection that requires mutual intelligibility on the part of their players. Steinmuller's analysis of political irony in China draws an interesting contrast between such types of interpretive irony and what he calls their cynical counterparts. Whereas interpretive irony functions on the principle of ambiguity, cynicism rather rests upon a position of absolute epistemological certainty. I suggest that Steinmuller's model might prove helpful to an understanding of prejudicial humour, with the caveat that one more fully considers the necessary interactions between cynical and interpretive ironies in any given instance. On the Tartar shop floor, one uses profane humour to make opaque and indirect statements on the principles of sociality, a process that belongs to the field of interpretive irony, since the meaning of the statements is not necessarily clear. However, if Steinmiller is correct in his suggestion that interpretive irony creates intimate spaces, then one must consider that cynicism pervades understandings of what lays beyond them. Communities that define themselves as progressive and reflexive usually do so in opposition to a less tolerant imagined other, whose cultural and political life they understand in fixed and usually highly cynical ways. On the Tartar shop floor, the interpretive ironies of profane joking are mutually constitutive with the cynicism by which Sunil and Muhammad understand communal politics beyond it. In short, the ironist cynically defines themselves against a reactionary public that does not speak the same language. The modelling of irony as intimacy provides a slightly more nuanced understanding of joking than is usual in many labour ethnographies. Studies of analogous forms of workplace joking, such as flirting or teasing, have tended to read an expression of social domination into such practices that's not warranted in this particular case. For example, Kevin Yelvington's research on flirting between men and women in the Trinidadian factory has posited that joking relationships are divisive practices which express and consolidate unequal relations of gender, class and race. In some, or perhaps even many contexts, this may well be true. However, in any given instance, one must consider the intentionality of those that participate in those practices and the ironic content and interpretation of the joke in question. For example, Tartar jokes may reproduce a series of offensive national stereotypes about Sikhs. However, these practices are not acts of domination by privileged sections of the workforce neither are they motivated by cultural animosity. Rather, such humour is a subtle statement that while workers are divided by ethnic difference, they are united by how they choose to engage with that difference. It's the capacity of Tartar jokes to say one thing and mean another, and to say it with such subtlety that the imagined public of communalism will be excluded from the exchange that makes joking an effective technology of intimacy as a game that references mutable symbols and anticipates the private interpretations of one's interlocutors, joking is a social play that supposes a listener's ability to recognise meanings that are never directly articulated. I suggest that whereas commentaries on things like the relations of production reference things that unite workers and may be explicitly spoken of without fear of undermining social relations, discussions of the identities which divide workers use a shared register of irony to implicitly restate cultural intimacy. In a context of communal violence, where recollections of conflict, dishonour and offence are a motor of retaliation, a silence upon atrocity is one of the means by which a multi-ethnic workforce is engaged in the business of building everyday peace. However, in this context, silence constitutes neither avoidance nor the disavowal of guilt. On the contrary, I suggest that the Tartar workforce speaks indirectly to the politics of communalism in everyday forms of profane sociality, which articulate an understanding of ethnic and religious difference that is distinct from the logics of violence. When judged as a form of irony and dissimulation, prejudicial jokes may be understood 
as the tacit expression of values and ideas that run counter to their superficial content. In this sense, when exchanging humorous slurs with one another, Tartar workers distance themselves from the more transparent public prejudices that answer insult with violence. <clears throat> the profane humour of the Tartar shop floor is embedded within social relations that determine whether persons may insult one another in a manner that is both reciprocal and non-injurious. This type of profane humour most effectively functions when it's exchanged between persons that possess similar levels of social capital. In this respect, the joking relationships of the shop floor are consistent with the broader sociality of fictive brotherhood that locally characterises amicable relations between men of a similar age and social standing. In these relations, intimacy is commonly performed through humorous insult and a rhetorical disrespect which performatively states that one's interlocutors are persons of such closeness that it would be impossible to offend them to the point of alienation. As in many ethnographic contexts, men that share in these relations might mock one another's appearance and reputation, cast aspersions on their sexual prowess, label one another with the most offensive of terms, and engage in playful displays of violence. Consistent with this relationship are not only active insults, but the latent assumption that normal public rules of etiquette may be dispensed with among persons that truly care for one another. In the urban environment of Jamshapur, this irreverent and boisterous style of masculinity is popularly regarded as typical of persons from the state of Bihar. On the Tata shop floor, however, this mode of performance defines a work culture shared by all non-managerial employees, regardless of their regional and, ethnographic ba- and ethnic backgrounds. As I've discussed in an earlier paper, the Tata workplace is characterised by an antagonistic schism between the company's managerial class of high-caste Hindus from the neighbouring state of West Bengal and their diverse subordinates, whom they refer to under the subsuming category of Biharis. In this coding, so-called Bihari workers are said to be insensitive in their dealings and coarse in their manners, whereas the discourse claims that the peaceful and productive culture of Bengalis predisposes them towards technological and artistic sophistication. Biharis, on the other hand, are believed to be an impetuous people, quick to anger, fond of insults, and careless with their conduct. However, while the notion of Bihari vulgarity is used by company managers in ways that are prejudicial, amongst the plant's workforce, profanity is an inclusive aesthetic field that fixes the uncertain objects of diverse identities on the shop floor within the boundaries of an intelligible shared culture. In this respect, profanity helps to draw the boundaries of an intimate public. In two influential essays on the topic, Mary Douglas argues that the core of successful humour is usually the inversion of a social order, such as the disrespect shown to one's mother-in-law in a narrative joke, a person's failure to see the evident misfortune about to befall them in slapstick, or the utterance of a profane word in an unexpected context. In environments where inversion is at least partly conceivable and acceptable to the social order, then the joke, Douglas claims, may be said to be funny. However, where an audience perceives fear, anxiety and conflict in the social order, then humour on those topics is usually rejected as harmful and insensitive. And in many contexts, that's the case with racist and sexist jokes. Douglas's framing seems helpful to an understanding of joking on the Tata shop floor, which willfully subverts the sacred objects of ethnicity and religion for the purposes of humour. Where in Indian public life, the beard of a pious Muslim is an earnest precept that should not be mocked. On the Tata shop floor, this sacred symbol is profaned alongside Gandhi's birthday and Sandeep's Nepalese ancestry. It's beyond the scope, and indeed the interest of this paper, to say whether that humour is funny in any objective sense. However, it's clear that the people who exchange these jokes with one another respond to them as though they were funny. 
And I think it's here that Douglas's framing begins to break down. In a national context where communal violence claimed the lives of hundreds of thousands of people throughout the 20th century, one should assume that ethnic and religious humour would be both dangerous and distasteful. As in other cases of post-violence recovery, in Jamshipur, the tensions of everyday life may serve as a mnemonic for past atrocities. And Michael Stewart discusses something quite similar in his analysis of the Holocaust. The fact that jokes about religion and ethnicity are socially productive in the Tata workplace requires, I think, a fuller exploration of the role played by profanity in mediating precarious social relations. Beneath the shared class experience that unites Tata workers is a gulf of distinction between low-caste and high-caste Hindus, Muslims, Sikhs, and many competing regional identities, which the communal atrocities of public life necessarily draw attention to. Brought together in public relations of mutual dependency, inter-ethnic sociality is a potentially hazardous yet unavoidable aspect of working life. This said, the jokes of the workplace therefore do not arise from a bucolic environment that's free of tension, but rather arise from one that actively builds sociality in the face of national reminders of local violence, such as the mnemonic of the Mumbai train bombings. What I argue is that the inter-ethnic relations of the workplace are mediated by a profanity that inverts the logics of communal conflict and effectively closes the social distance between colleagues. This argument can be pieced together through a rethinking of Douglas's insights on the relationship between intimacy, profanity and danger. For Douglas, the social logic of respect is contingent upon distance between actors in an index which she called the dignity register. Put simply, the further the social distance between people, the less permitted are references to profanity and vulgarity, with allusions to bodily functions being a particularly common area of avoidance in most societies. For people that are closer to one another, taboos on profanity may be broken more freely and the act of doing so is often a sign of closeness. In contexts where strangers are brought together in precarious relationships, such as workplaces or wedding parties, the performative transgression of taboo may be integral to the cementing of intimacy. This is, of course, at the heart of Radcliffe Brown's classic analysis of joking between African affines, but may just as well be applied to consensual pranks and hazing rituals in schools, colleges or the military. In the Tata Motors plant, the exchange of profanity is a similar performance of intimacy between potential strangers and suggests that participants enjoy a degree of closeness that would permit disrespect. So as discussed in Wilson and Thomas's excellent analyses of West Indian cultures of profanity, exchanging what Wilson and Thomas call slackness is usually an effective way of building intimate relations. Nonetheless, the practice of profane humour is always fraught with the potential to cause offence and cannot be properly executed without a considerable degree of social acumen. When it's directed against persons that are too socially distant, profane humour ceases to be productive of closeness between the speaker and the object of insult. So while Sandeep and his peers may become more intimate with one another through the amicable exchange of disrespect, their jokes about the plant's foreman serve to reinforce their separation from the target of their words. Likewise, the jokes of one Tartar manager, who commonly mocked his subordinates, contained neither intimate intent nor ironic content. His words were clear statements of insult that accentuated the differences between himself and persons that were unable to offer an equivalent response. For an insult to be socially productive, it must be the subject of a reciprocal exchange between feasibly intimate actors. That would potentially suggest a gift-like reading of joking, in which relations between persons are the primary focus of analysis, above and beyond the actual object of exchange itself. However, I suggest that jokes should not be analysed purely as tokens of social relations. Jokes also have a content that articulates values and perspectives on social life. By enacting profanity and insult, the colleagues that sit with one another on the shop floor of the Tata Motors plant each lunchtime essentially make a statement on what type of a Muslim, 
Hindu or Sikh one is. In comparison to the volatile religious identities which filled Indian newspapers the day after the Mumbai train bombings, the men of the Tata break room make a very subtle statement through their jokes and insults that while they may be ethnically distinct persons, they nonetheless speak in a shared public register. It's true that like all social fields, profanity trades potentially divisive capital in the charisma and popularity of individuals. Some people, like Sandeep, are particularly adept at conjuring obscene insults, while their colleagues might fail to respond with the right timing or wit. However, profane exchanges on the shop floor effectively serve to undermine the social distinctions which many labour ethnographies have claimed are reinforced by ethnic joking. So whereas one might regard such forms of apparent hate speech as being constitutive of a system of prejudice, abuse and violence, offensive humour nonetheless has the capacity to operate according to logics that are entirely distinct from the actual practices of communalism. <clears throat> Following Judith Butler, I argue that a serious and subtle understanding of the social power of speech and insult must contend with the fact that potentially injurious representations have radically different effects depending upon their context and their mode of address. It is the social dimensions of speech, more than the static shape of the words themselves or the superficial reference of their stereotypes, which determine the ability of insults to injure, amuse, or even create intimacy. When an apparently injurious utterance is made to another person with an expectation that it will be returned, that act implicitly inaugurates one's interlocutor as a person that may speak in the same register and speak with the same empowering capacity to potentially cause offence. Practices of profane joking performatively establish that dissimilar persons have the capacity to speak and act in similar ways and to receive those acts in similar ways. So far from being an act of threat that prefigures or even contains violence, the joking practices described in this paper are everyday attempts towards the resolution of violence. Although prejudicial representations contain power regardless of their context, as Butler argues, their utterance in a given instance is not necessarily linked to the violent effects they engender elsewhere. This conceptualisation of prejudicial jokes as a technology of intimacy allows one to consider the implicit distinctions which jokers make between themselves and those outside of their immediate public. If a joking affine or colleague is one with whom one may safely invert the sacred, then beyond this intimacy is a more distant public for whom such inversions are fraught with danger. So if Douglas's analysis of danger and vulgarity in joking is lacking, it is in the failure to recognise the plurality of publics which constitutes social life for all of us and the divergent humours that pertain to them. While the national public of Indian communal politics sorry, while in the national public of Indian communal politics, prejudicial jokes are indeed dangerous, in the Tata Motors plant, the very same humour is funny and functional, since it implicitly distances itself from places where it could never be so. Likewise, that which is acceptable in the profane space of the shop floor may well be unthinkable in the home, a fact which allows jokers to play ironically with the sanctity of their identity in one context while retaining its meaningful core elsewhere. The tendency to read workplaces as basic mirrors or synecdoches of society would suggest that prejudicial jokes primarily support and compound existing social inequalities. On the contrary, I argue that in contexts of serious communal conflict, humour of this form articulates a permitted disrespect that suggests closeness. And in this case, prejudicial and vulgar humour may subvert wider social mores. To conclude, on July the 20th of last year, rumours spread throughout Jamshedpur that a Hindu woman had been harassed by a group of young Muslim men outside a local student hostel. By the next morning, right-wing Hindu activist groups had organised violent demonstrations in several neighbourhoods, where shops were attacked and a number of vehicles set on fire. Fearing an escalation of events, local police imposed an 8pm curfew across the city, which remained in effect for three nights, 
By the time city life returned to normal, although there had been no serious injuries, more than 100 people had been arrested. Although the July 2015 unrest was on a far smaller scale than the riots of 1979, the event is a timely reminder that offensive joking on the shop floor takes place in an environment of latent tension. Joking plays an active role in building peace on the multi-ethnic shop floor in a context where the tropes of communalism are dangerous to engage with directly. Such joking relationships create intimacy through an ironic and apparently offensive commentary on the public life of ethnic difference. In his analysis of African joking relations, Radcliffe Brown describes marriage as a moment of contradiction, where two families with potentially conflicting interests are thrust into enduring social relations with one another. The humorous insults that characterise the sociality of affines references their evident distance, while also establishing a principle that one should take no offence to an insult. Speaking across several generations of anthropologists, Radcliffe Brown might still shed light on the permitted disrespect of jokes on the Tartar shop floor. One's colleagues, like one's affines, are after all potentially strangers or even enemies, with whom one must establish the right degree of intimacy and distance. However, moving beyond functional analyses of the joking relationship, I suggest that humour is clearly something more than the rules and the social structures which surround it. Jokes have a counterintuitive political content that may be only indirectly articulated. This paper concludes that public exchanges of offensive humour have an ironic content that implicitly articulates a position on communal politics. In the ethnographic context discussed here, the profanity of ethnic and religious insults are a performative statement that the workplace functions on principles that are distinct from the communal tropes of offence, retaliation and conservatism. Where communal politics is a social field that never forgets, never forgives and values the fixity of the past, the workplace is said to operate on more flexible and tolerant principles rooted firmly in the present. Here the most opaque and contradictory statements of joking are significant and I suggest that irony belongs in the conceptual canon of political anthropology where it might inform our understanding of how communities are formed through values and ideas that may not be directly articulated at all. The irony of offensive jokes is that their profane sociality is able to undermine intolerance. That's the end.